on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach with you this week. Our great mate Sally Carpy with us. She'll join us again in a couple of weeks' time. But it's worth hanging around today because we have a very special guest. Wayne Swan was the treasurer of Australia from the 3rd of December 2007 to the 27th of June 2013. A tumultuous time in Australian politics and in Australia's economic history as well. And Mr Swan was the man that guided Australia through the global financial crisis. His stewardship of the Australian economy at that time saw him named the best treasurer in the world by some newspapers around the world. And it meant that his name and his story would be forever enshrined in Australian Labor's history. These days, he's no longer in politics. He retired from the political fray at the end of the last election. He's still president of the Australian Labor Party, but he enjoys a relatively quiet life in his hometown of Brisbane. And that's where I went to visit him. I thought it'd be good to catch up with Wayne Swan and ask him, well, as somebody who's taken Australia through a major economic crisis, how would he have handled this particular crisis caused by the pandemic. And remember, Wayne Swan and the Labor Party were pilloried by the Conservatives for over a decade in what they called Labor's budget black hole for the money they spent in order to keep the Australian economy ticking over and thriving throughout the global financial crisis while the rest of the world was in economic ruin and chaos. And it seems now that the Liberal Party have suddenly had a road to Damascus conversion to that idea and are doing just that themselves. So how does he see things and how would he have handled the current crisis that we find ourselves in? I caught up with Wayne Swan. I went out to his house in Queensland. I was able to wander into his study in his old Queenslander, which is filled floor to ceiling with great books on American history and music rather like my own, with a guitar ramp in the background and a Springsteen record on the turntable as I walked in. It was great to sit down with him. And here he is, Wayne Swan. Wayne, welcome to On The Job. Good to be with you. First things first, what was your first job? And what was the worst job that you ever had to do? The dirtiest, the meanest, the nastiest job you ever had to do? The first one actually was shoveling shit at a chook farm. (laughs) But the one and the dirtiest one I had to do uh, was as a sewerage maintenance man in the Brisbane City Council in the middle of the 1974 flood where the whole sewerage system had broken down and was clogged up. And there I was, you know, I was about second year at uni and I was out there shoveling shit. (laughs) <laughs> Literally, which was great preparation for politics. <laughs> Absolutely. As, a, as an AWU member, fully paid up, 1974, same year I joined the party. <laughs> the only way was up from all of that. Um, let's talk a little bit about what's been going on of late. I'm sure you've been following it as much as anyone. You were in politics, are you know fascinated with politics your entire life. Did you ever think you'd see the day that you'd hear a US president stand on the floor of Congress and say, it's time for good-paying union jobs, coming from the heart of capitalism uh, USA? It warms the heart. It really does, because, you know, this bloke who was characterised as being past it, uh, you know, he was nowhere near as left-wing as Warren or Sanders, has turned out to be someone who's going to be quite consequential in history, because literally what he has done is is he has buried trickle-down economics in every respect. Uh, and, and he's done it from a position of respect for the hard work of ordinary people. 
and for a US president to say that he that he not only stands for jobs but well-paying jobs uh, and good union jobs shows that he absolutely understands everything that's gone wrong in economics and politics over the last 40 years and he has systematically set about burying trickle-down economics which is built on a formula of, of tax cuts for the wealthy uh, deregulation for the powerful, the abolition of social safety nets, and wage suppression for everybody else. Uh, and instead of being out there spraying his message around and trying to do too much across too many areas at once, he's got stuck right in to the core areas of public policy that go to the heart of not only driving growth, but the living standards for working people, and highlighted the importance of the wage share in the economy and how pushing it to record lows and the profit share to record highs has been a recipe, not just for weak and anemic economic growth, but for rampant wealth and income inequality and the destruction of the health and wealth of ordinary people over a 40-year period. So it warms my heart uh, to see an American president, born of his experiences, born of his values, someone who was not <laughs> seen to be a front-runner in the field, get out there and get it done. So here in Australia, um, should we be having our Labor politicians say, go join your union because it's good for, it's good for the economy? Many of us do, but it never seems to be reported in any way that is positive. <laughs> um, uh, but the truth is, if you look at what's happened to the rampant wealth and income inequality globally across the developed world, which hasn't been anywhere near as bad here in Australia as it has been elsewhere, only because of the policies of past Labor governments. If you look at that and you deconstruct the policy mix that's delivered, it, one has been the destruction of progressive taxation. The second one has been the destruction of the bargaining power of the workforce and a decent industrial framework. And thirdly, it's been the destruction of social safety nets through attacks on the size of government. So the Labor Party here absolutely understands the importance of all those issues. And indeed, the program we took to the last election aimed to deal with all of those issues. And of course, we had a pretty narrow result in that election. A lot of people carry on as if it was, it was the end of the world. It was certainly a very bitter defeat uh, and one that shouldn't have probably happened. But it wasn't a massacre of the Labor Party. We lived to fight another day and we lived to fight for increasing the bargaining power of average people, of having a progressive income taxation system that allows us to spend and invest in people, which is actually what we need to do anyway to drive growth and higher living standards. Secure work is an issue that keeps coming up. And it's interesting because a economy that's built on casualised work, uh, labour hire, uh, is something that's almost been baked in the economic mix for yeah, the time and being. it's economic bullshit. I mean, that's what we know. It's even being called out these days by the IMF. Uh, the IMF makes the point that if you have an economy in which incomes are becoming more unequal, then that will mean weaker growth. If you have an economy in which incomes are becoming somewhat more equal, you will have a stronger growth because it's just common sense to understand that with consumption being about 60% of your economy, if you're continually driving down the wage share of your economy. You're driving down economic growth and economic prosperity. And people don't have to accept that from me as a former treasurer. The current governor of the Reserve Bank is making this point so strongly, you might think that um, he could have been there on Labor Day. <laughs> Marching out front, union power. <laughs> so why has it been such a hard sell in the electorate then? And why even the economic drivers and the conservative side not seen that it would be in their interest to actually meet the needs of people who 
would benefit from more secure well, work and higher incomes. Well, the Conservative side of politics has held this since the Shearer's strike 130 years ago. So it's not a surprise that Conservatives in the political system uh, believe in having a higher profit share and a lower wage share. And it's up to the Labor movement and Labor governments and progressive forces to fight back against that. And uh, our party has done that. We did it in the Great Depression, you know, as the fantastic book that's just come out you know, on Scarlet and Curtin shows. So at times of crises, uh, Labor has been able to break through with a, with, with a platform that is unashamedly one that puts working people first on the principle that that is the way to generate prosperity and spread it fairly across the community. It's in business in, businesses' interest that working people are doing well. It's not the other way around. This trickle-down notion that if everyone at the top's got a lot of money, it'll magnificently fall to the bottom and everyone will pick it up and will grow is nonsense. And going through a pandemic such as we have has once again demonstrated that the real wealth creators in our community aren't the people that are sitting at the top floor of the building in the CEO's suite. It's ordinary workers out there at the front of the queue doing the everyday jobs that keep the economy running and provided once again a stark illustration that there's absolutely no way in the world that the CEO should be earning 200 or 300 times the salary of most of his workforce. You would have had candid conversations with people in those positions at your time as treasurer. Did you get a sense that they acknowledged that disparity was actually no good for the wider community but in their own self-interest just blithely ignored some but not many but they still go out and ask for the same policies that uh, that that create those sort of divides in, in the community I, I i think there are sensible business people who understand that uh, a healthy economy can only be built on a prosperous middle and working class in our community but unfortunately most of their representative organizations have policy initiatives which deny that fact and uh, accentuate the gaps the last year or so also showed the value of community and collective action. And You're if right. we hadn't have acted uh, in a way that was in everyone's interests, we could have been in a lot worse situation. Do you think that lesson will carry through in the post-pandemic era? There's no question in my mind that the pandemic has bent the arc of history further towards the recognition that it is the, is the task of governments to ensure that people are in work and are paid properly. I think this is a very significant event which will demonstrate you know, why, in a society such as ours, we should have a strong social democratic state which ensures uh, that people who work hard are paid well and in a society where the safety net is there for all. Because we've had a, a demonstration every day of the week that our common interests are far stronger than our self-interests. But unfortunately, we've had a dominant ideology around the world of putting self-interest ahead of common interest for a long period of time. Uh, I think it's been dealt a deadly blow by the pandemic. And it's up to us, uh, whether we're in the union movement or in the political sphere or more generally, uh, to go out and, and once again prosecute the case for collective solutions to collective problems. Because you couldn't get a, a more graphic demonstration of a collective problem than, say, climate change. But the biggest and worst collective problem we've had over the last 40 or 50 years has been the development of rampant wealth and income inequality, which is not only leading to uh, very low levels of growth and bad standards of living for many people, but is fracturing our democracy by poisoning our society. So I think that the two big challenges uh, for the Labor movement and progressive parties more generally are to articulate a range of positions and, and policies that tackle 
wealth and income inequality and dangerous climate change. They're the two big challenges of our era. And in each of those uh, areas, events during the pandemic have bent the arc towards what I would call more collective solutions. Well, let's talk a little bit about both of those. Firstly, about the income inequality and the the widening gap between the haves, the very small slither of haves and the have-nots. We're seeing in the American experience, and I guess in the British experience too, that when that becomes so stretched, the social contract gets ripped and people lose faith in their institutions, their government, they lose trust in their leaders. And they start start believing the the right-wing authoritarian leaders. So how far away are we from that here in Australia, do you think? Well, fortunately, because of of Labor governments, the Hawke-Keating government, the, um, the Gosgillard government, you know, we didn't experience the huge gaps that opened up, say, in America. So, you know, in, in a time from the mid, mid-90s through the 2000s, when average wages in this country were going up reasonably substantially over time, they didn't move in America. They didn't have a real wage increase for 30 or 40 years. In this country, we did. But we were still uh, on the receiving end of some of that inequality. And I, I think it was exacerbated as we went through uh, a series of economic events where capital became more mobile, uh, big multinational companies were not paying their tax, these sorts of things. But we didn't experience the same extreme pressure on low and middle income earners that was experienced uh, elsewhere in the developed world. It is true to say, however, that we've started to experience that over the last 10 years when we look at what's happened with real wage growth. So we've started to have a dose of what the rest of the uh, developed world was getting with wage suppression. And the climate change issue bleeds into the issue of work and a future economy that actually operates in this successful and prosperous in a zero emissions environment. We're starting from behind the eight ball because we haven't had an, an effective energy policy for 10 years. Well, we're not starting from behind Okay, the well, we're because, not starting from... Because the only reason we're even in the game is the carbon price that was put in place uh, by the Gillard government, which brought through it an immense uh, increase in investment in renewable energy and also sent a, lo- a, n- a number of very good signals to the rest of industry. Now, we would be flying high now. Uh, we would be leading the world and we would be building new industries based on cheaper renewable energy power if those clowns hadn't destroyed that framework. And their lack of a framework now is going to impact more harshly on significant sections of our workforce because of their failure to put in place a national policy position. But we won't be backing off from that. We understand that we have to make that transition. We have to support the workers in the areas that are affected, not by decisions that we take. The market is going to lead to the uh, gradual reduction of fossil fuels and their replacement with renewables. What's required is a framework which builds not just support for the existing workforce, but the new industries of the future based on uh, cheaper supply out of renewable energy. Is it really frustrating for you that we haven't moved it further along? Because no doubt you would have heard about the incredible potential for new technologies generating new jobs and making Australia a green energy technological leader that actually exports its manufacturing sure. capacity rather than just being a net importer because we send all our resources well, offshore. That's another, that's another benefit of the pandemic because the importance of supply lines, of domestic manufacture of, uh, of particular goods and services, and in this case we could say critical minerals, for example, process and export has got to be to the fore. So, you know, as we go through the next 30 or 40 years, we will see some of our big industries lose their size and lose their markets. That's going to happen to coal over time. It will happen to others. Our job 
is to find what is the new industry to replace those industries over the next 34 years. And we all know we have enormous comparative advantage when it comes to renewable energy and critical resources and also in agriculture and a whole host of other areas. Our task is to reimagine what replaces those sorts of products over the next 30 or 40 years. And when you look at our economy, it's pretty easy to see what they are. But that's going to require a new partnership, a new investment partnership between government and the private sector to kickstart these industries, just like it did with the car industry post-war and other industries. Let's talk about the car industry as an example. So it went through the phase of being emblematic of that post-war boom. Everyone wanted to own a car. That was a sort of sign of, uh, of working class growing affluence and influence that you could have your own home car. Now we can't make a car in Australia anymore because we've gone through the cycle and we're now at the end of the supply chain. Is there a chance that we could make our own cars again? Well, maybe, but we'll certainly be making lots of other things. For example, people would have probably scoffed at you if you'd said we were manufacturing rail equipment and uh, uh, carriages and so on at Maryborough in Queensland. We're going to keep, we're going to be doing more of a lot of that stuff. Uh, and uh, we, you know, we are highly educated, highly trained workforce, notwithstanding the, the cuts that have been made by the Conservatives to that base. And I do think that in the manufacturing industries of the future, there's certainly a, a big place for Australia. And the pandemic has given us a wake-up call as to the importance of supply lines and the need to do that in critical industries. And our strategic manufacturing capacity, without getting too egg-heady, the fact that we feel a bit exposed, that we don't have the capacity of heavy industry to make stuff there's that no we question. need. question. Not just for economic reasons, but for reasons, if you like, of security or national security. We do need to be more active in areas like that, which is why we do need to be you know, making submarines and, and other parts of the supply. Wayne, in terms of the the change we've seen also in federal parliament in recent times around uh, gender issues and gender equity, have you been surprised that it's taken this long for these issues to come to a head? Well, yes and no. I mean, the Labor Party was onto the issue of low levels of female participation in politics 30 years ago, and uh, we put in place um, an affirmative action policy which has almost got our level of representation uh, up to 50%, and it will be after the next election for certain. Uh, But on the broader questions of systematic discrimination against women and, and domestic violence and so on, we should have done a lot better than we have, and there's a long way to go. But this debate, so much of what we need to achieve in this country comes back to this very important question of equality, of economic equality, of gender equality, of racial equality. Uh, And uh, we as a Labor Party, above all, should absolutely understand that to achieve genuine equality, you've really got to make a lot of progress on economic equality in the first instance, to achieve gender equality and to achieve racial equality. All of the uh, inequalities in the pay, in superannuation, in hours of work, in childcare and so on, are fundamental economic inequalities. So my view is that we have to do a lot better across the board, but we as a Labor Party above all have to understand that dealing with economic inequality is an essential precondition of making more systemic progress on gender and racial uh, equality. I'll never forget the freedom riders uh, that Martin Luther King spoke to in Washington all those years ago marched under a banner the banner was jobs and freedom. So as far back there uh, in that battle, which has got a long way to go uh, in the United States, was the recognition of the centrality of, of economic equality to the achievement of broader equality across the board. I want you to take me inside a crisis. And, and you were there with Kevin Rudd and with the Rudd government in the early days of your first term there, when the dark clouds of the global financial crash was coming. 
When was it for you? What was the moment for you you realised that this was more than just a momentary thing, but this was a, a tsunami that was going to crash down and wash everything away? And what was that like? Well, first of all, realising that the global financial crisis uh, was coming uh, was in March 2008. And remember, it didn't really erupt fully until October when I was in Washington uh, and having some discussions with uh, business people at the embassy and sitting around a table and uh, I asked them, um, there'd been a recent collapse of a, 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 an investment bank called Bear Stearns in, in March 2008. And I made the remark, oh, well, things seem to be settling down, it's getting better. And this guy across the table said, this is not the end. This is not the beginning of the end. This is just the end of the beginning. And how did you feel? <laughs> and I was sitting there, well, I felt pretty, pretty bad. My stomach churned and I was there with Ken Henry because we were just putting the finishing touches on our budget. And of course, at that time, the biggest problem in Australia was inflation. The economy was running pretty hot and inflation uh, was at its highest levels in years and years. So we were preparing a slim budget, if you like, because we had inflationary pressures running pretty high. Uh, that seems pretty bizarre to be talking about <laughs> inflationary pressures, given everything that's happened since then. So we came back and we actually recalibrated our budget. Uh, and when I brought it down in May, uh, you know, this time... Um, all those years ago, uh, I was vilified by the Murdoch press for squibbing the savings task. Of course, they kept vilifying me even when it was demonstrated that the budget we brought down was one for the times and was one that gave us a much better position to fight the global financial crisis uh, when it eventually erupted uh, and uh, went, to be, went, <laughs> went basically full on from about October 2008 onwards. Well, there's some really big moments where you decided that you just had to spend to make sure that you kept the crash at bay. From a personal level, what's that like to make those decisions and go, I have to make a choice here and I'm going to choose this way and history's going to judge me if I get this right or wrong? There were two big inflection points. So it was the package we put together in October 2008 and then another huge one, a really big one, um, in, uh, in early February 2009. Uh, I personally was somewhat haunted by what I'd heard from my parents about the Great Depression. My family were pushed off a soldier war settlement farm in the 30s. Uh, my grandfather had been a, uh, to World War I. And also by uh, the impact of the 1991 recession and the impact it had on people in, in, in my electorate uh, in, in that era uh, during the, the Hawke-Keating period where there were, there were lots of older blue-collar workers who lost their jobs in that recession who never worked again never worked again and and I think the assessment of the the Treasury and it was certainly my assessment as a new member of that government elected uh, in 1993 that there wasn't a quick enough response so it was not only the advice of the Treasury but it was also my feeling that we had to move quickly had to move sharply which is where going go hard go early go households uh, came from but that was just the first stimulus package it was only 10 billion about one percent of gdp the really big one was the one we did of 40 odd billion uh in uh, in february uh, the next year 2009 over that christmas i'd been to the united states and seen the hell that was going on around the world and i had some very chilling meetings with the the, the fed in new york um, where they were talking about a second great depression and by that stage, we were well down the road to producing a very large second stimulus package. And I walked out of there saying, we have to use overwhelming force. 
And overwhelming force is what we did use uh, with our second stimulus package um, in early February 2009, for which we were vilified for a decade or more by the Conservatives for, for doing. That saved our country. We used overwhelming force. We did put in place probably the most successful stimulus of any developed country in the world, for which we were duly recognised a couple of years later. Alongside China, there were no other countries that had responded to the GFC, which overseas was known as the Great Recession and went on for years and years and years. That package we put in place wasn't just about 2009, it was about 2010, it was about 2011. So we used overwhelming force and uh, I knew we would be hung, drawn and courted and vilified, not just by the Liberal Party, but by uh, all, of their, all of their supporters in the, in, in the mainstream media. And of course, we were. <laughs> and of course, now they have all become Keynesians too and feel no, like they, they, they haven't become Keynesians. So, so how do you read their response to this crisis well, and, they, and their package? They are somewhat reluctant converts to Keynesian demand management. But what they're doing is not Keynesian. They're spending a lot of money. But if they were Keynesian, they wouldn't be taking all manner of decisions to ensure that the profit share was higher and the wage share was lower. We've just recorded the lowest wage share in the economy in our history. We have just recorded the lowest wage growth in our history. And all of their policies aim to keep that so. So we just had a debate about changes to the industrial relations system that were going to weaken bargaining power, that weren't going to fix up the problem with casuals in the workforce. We've got legislated tax cuts for the top 20% sitting there, massive amounts of money. So you can't claim to be Keynesian if you are taking distributional decisions which increase inequality in a society. That's not Keynesianism. That's just spraying money around ineffectively and handing it to your mates, principally. Do you miss being in politics? But I'm not out of it. You're not out of politics. Do you miss being in uh, Parliament? Well, I, just, I, don't, I don't miss being in Parliament. I, I had 25 years in Parliament, and there comes a time when you become officially a senior, <laughs> uh, which I have. I opened a forum here the other day with the saying, this is the first time I've actually opened a seniors forum as a senior. <laughs> time to move on, but I haven't lost my passion for politics. I'm still involved. I'm president of the Labor Party, and I still, um, I still carry the flag. But I do that a bit freer to move around and not have to be um, out there in one fixed place working in one electorate. So I'm still pretty much out there banging the drum, if you like. Very effectively. Now, we're sitting in your study downstairs, and have you got more time now to play guitar? Because I'm looking across the room, and I think I can see a Fender Stratocaster over in the corner and a decent set of uh, amp and, and an effects rack over there. What's going over there, Wayne? What's well, that, happening? That, that's, that's all the kids. I've got I've got three, three kids. And all... I thought it was you ripping up the Jimi Hendrix riffs. No, no, well, I think they got their interest and love of music from, from their parents, and, <laughs> and, and they, they grew up hearing a lot of great, great music but I don't have a, any musical talent but the place is full of musical instruments and the place has always been full of music uh, for, for the whole time we've lived here which is going on 40 years. I came in before and you were playing a Springsteen record. What Springsteen record were we listening to when, we, when well, you and I arrived? Well, given the conversation, Wrecking Ball of yes. course. So I used to which actually... Which was his great GFC record really well, wasn't and, it? And one of his greatest albums. Yes. Um, uh, I, I used to play that really loud in my ministerial suite during the GFC because Wrecking Ball is all about yeah. the GFC. 
So no Marla for you. So Keating used to play Marla before he went into into battle in, in Question Time. You were listening to Springsteen instead. Absolutely. <laughs> well, but 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 very early in the morning. It'd be a big difference between Paul, Paul and I. I used to be in the office really early because <laughs> <laughs> that's when any, any time you got anything done, and the cleaners would all be walking around saying, "What's going on in there?" <laughs> Just Bruce Springsteen ripping through the speakers. What I love about having a chat with you is you're still optimistic, given the last twenty years have been you know chaotic and a little bit mad uh in the long stretch of our history but you still seem like you're very optimistic about well, the future I remember, I remember how down everyone was about the uh, the result of the primaries in the u.s and sl- so-called sleepy joe and, and whatever and and the favorite lefties didn't get up uh, you know in the in the primaries and you know and uh, it's just given me so much hope and, and um optimism about what can be possible we're not done yet, are we? Not done yet. We're, ne- we're never done. Look, when you're fighting entrenched, entrenched power and entrenched interests, it's never easy. And harder, it got a lot harder in this country in the last few years, have, as we've seen the, you know, the Trumpification of the Liberal Party, um, you know, very large corporates throwing their weight around, uh, very rich people wanting to make democracy their plaything. You know, politics, to get a Labor message out, I think is now probably harder than it's been virtually at any time in our history. But we can do it. We just got to keep at it. Uh, we got to be better than them at some 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 of the things we do. We can always improve. We just got to keep fighting. Wayne Swan, thank you for being on the job. Good to talk to you. Wayne Swan, there, the national president of the Australian Labor Party, former treasurer of Australia, and it was great to sit down with him in his Brisbane home to have that conversation about current economic times and the future of work and unions, and how he would handle the current economic crisis. On the job, Francis Leach with you. Now, last week in Melbourne, the Fair Work Commission was hearing submissions on the annual wage case. Now, we all know that in the current climate, Australia's wage earners are suffering badly. We have had low wage growth for nearly a decade now, and the government doesn't seem in a rush anytime soon to improve the wages of workers, despite the fact that it was ordinary workers who got us through last year's pandemic. In fact, many employers and the government are arguing for a wage freeze so that even the lowest earners amongst us can't get a pay rise in the upcoming financial round and with the Fair Work Commission. Considering that, the ACTU and workers took to the steps of the Fair Work Commission last Wednesday to voice their opinion and to make their voice heard about the need for a wage rise. Sally McManus, the Secretary of the ACTU, was there and she addressed the crowd. Local businesses all around here, all around the country, depend on essential workers, minimum wage workers, getting a pay rise. Our whole economy depends on workers getting a pay rise. Australia needs a pay rise. Now, I tell you what, you know who doesn't need a pay rise? Jerry Harvey, because he's already given himself one. One big, massive pay rise, a pandemic pay rise that he gave himself out of rewarding JobKeeper. Do you know what he said about last year? It's an opportunity, an opportunity for his company. And they saw a 300% increase in sales of refrigerators and of air purifiers, and they did fantastically. And their workers went to go to work every day in most places around the country all throughout last year to deliver him record profits. His profits increased by 116% last year. And you know what? His representatives are in here arguing that his workers should have a pay 
Thank you very much, everyone. That's Sully McManus there, ACTU Secretary, last Wednesday in Melbourne at the Fair Work Commission, putting the case for a wage rise for Australian workers. There were plenty of workers there, and I spoke to a few of them about why life is so very hard on the wages they're currently earning and why it just makes sense for workers to be given the pay rise so that they can just pay their way. Grace is one of those. Grace is a hospitality worker in Melbourne, a member of the United Workers Union, and she was there to make sure that those making the decision understood that people working in hospo, they need a pay rise. Grace, you thought it was important to be here today to speak on behalf of workers in the hospitality industry. What brought you down here? I guess you summed it up there, Francis. I think that all we can do really is fight for better conditions in our industry. We've spent too long putting up with with not being recognised and being left behind and with banding together to say enough is enough. How hard is it to live on the current wage that you receive and, and with prices and costs the way they are? I don't think that I'm alone in saying that I live week to week on my hospitality wages. I think that in saying that I represent a majority of the workforce, we are already significantly underpaid in my opinion. We're one of the lowest paid industries in the country. And like I said, it's week to week. So 
wage stagnation means a cut to that, really. It means that with rapidly augmenting uh, cost of living, we're getting left behind and it's becoming increasingly difficult to do things like travel to and from work, uh, you know, afford things like medication and, and medical services. And so it's already incredibly challenging. It's only going to get worse without a pay rise. So every week you're having to make those calculations about what you can and can't afford, whether you need to maybe go to the dentist or something. Are these the sorts of decisions you have to make week to week? Absolutely, that's right. I mean, we have to... We're already on such precarious tight budgets that, again, those essential services like going to the dentist for necessary dental work, going and seeing a doctor, seeking mental health services, things like that, that everybody needs and needs to have free access to are incredibly challenging on the wages that we're being paid at the moment. And how do you feel when you hear employers arguing for a wage freeze? <laughs> I think there are a few uh, four-letter words that come to mind when I hear employers say that we need a wage freeze. But, I mean, ultimately, again, it's... It's the time has come. We've gotten away with uh, wage stagnation. Well, they've gotten away with wage stagnation for such a long time. Uh, it's their time to, to sit down and think about what is just and what is fair and what workers really deserve. So Cole, tell us about the sort of work that you do. So I work in disability support. So I do a lot of home care. So I work one-on-one -on -one with clients, do stuff around the home, do stuff in the community. With a couple of clients, it's more personal care sort of stuff. So it's hard work and it's a work that's in a way vocation because you're really committed to the people you're looking after, but it's very low paid, isn't it? Yeah, it's not a high paid industry. We're uh, working on the Shads Award. It's tough to get by, you know. I love my job and I love working in it, but I'm not putting away a lot of money every month into savings. I'm just ticking by. So are you having to make sacrifices because of that in terms of what you choose to spend your money on? Yeah, working in a casualized industry, there's always that thought that I have to make sure that I've got savings. I can't go out and make flashy spendings. I can't invest in a new car. Like I'm working with my little 2007 Corolla that have been, that's been puttering away for a long time. And if that goes down, I'm in a lot of trouble. You know, there's just, there's no avenue for me to save money. It's always, making sure that I can get those dollars. And it's really important too, because you're working in an industry where we need people who are committed to the work, who want to be there, who want to look after our most vulnerable. I, do you at times think, well, is it really worth it? Yeah, it's tough, it's tough. If it wasn't a job that I loved, I'd, I'd struggle staying in the industry just because it's so individualized. So it's like the issue with other industries is that they work as part of a team. Working in disability, when it's all one-on-one, -on -one, it's very hard to form those connections, which is great with the union movement that I know that there's other workers out there who are in the same sort of predicament and that I have a community out there. How would a 3.25% pay rise impact your life? What sort of difference would it make to you and, uh, and your work? It'd be, it'd be massive. It'd be just, just that little bit of peace of mind, that there's that extra, extra money coming into, into my pocket every week that I can put away should anything happen, should an accident at work happen, should something happen to my car. There's just that peace of mind knowing that there's a little bit of a safety net there, that I'm not really in trouble. So Jeremy, tell me about the sort of work you do. So I, I'm a casual McDonald's worker. Um, I'm a manager there, but I'm a under 21, so I'm a pretty low paid manager there. Just normal shift work, that's my sort of job. Everything that needs to be done on a daily basis. And working in that role is getting increasingly more difficult because wages are frozen? I'm already paid at a very low rate, which makes it hard enough. With wages being froze, it, it affects me immediately because I prices are going up for everything. and I'm already being paid low enough that I can't afford to go without an increase. What sort of things are you having to give up or forego because, you know, there's just not enough money? I, I'm not too hard off, but the, the real issue for me is that I can't afford petrol a lot of the time. You know, petrol prices are going up. 
my wage isn't and I can't afford petrol to get to work, to, you know, to drive my brothers around, to drive my family around. I can't afford to do that when I'm not paid the right amount. Does it make you feel like work's hardly worth it when you can't afford to live? There's weeks where I'm spending as much on petrol as I am for a full shift. It's a full shift gone, or full shift or two, you know, eight hours a day that I'm having to spend on petrol because there's, there's no other option. I have no other way to get to work. You must see a lot of other people you work with, young people in a similar situation. Yeah, I think I think that's that's my main issue is that I work with a lot of immigrants. I work with a lot of people that are coming here on very low incomes that can't afford to put themselves through university to have a house, to pay their bills. You know, there's workers that can't come to shifts because they physically can't get there. And that's my issue is that without a wage increase, these people don't have a job. How are they supposed to come out of, you know, a place where they're not earning much if they can't afford to get to work in the first place? If you could sit down with Josh Frydenberg for a minute and tell him what you really thought, what would you say to him? I think take a hard look at the people that you're supposed to be representing. You know, the people you're supposed to be representing are the people that aren't earning much. And he's done nothing for us. It always seems like it's the same sort of people earning the same sort that get advantages, that get more and more from the government. And we're sort of left behind because we're not directly in their view. That's Jeremy there, who works at McDonald's, who was one of the workers, one of the many workers at the Fair Work Commission last Wednesday in Melbourne to make sure their voice was heard as the commission was deliberating over the current wage case and whether Australia's workers, particularly the lowest paid workers, are due a decent pay rise this year in a time when low wages have been pretty much locked in for Australian workers for nearly a decade. We'll keep eyes across that absolutely here on the job. That's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Don't forget, we need your reviews. Give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast, uh, and uh, we uh, use those to make sure that others can find the podcast and join in the conversation. You can follow me on Twitter at St. Frankly, and we'll catch you next week here on the job. <laughs> <laughs>